Would you turn with me in God's holy word to Genesis chapter 45? We sort of cut off in the middle last time this scene of reconciliation between the brothers and Joseph, the one they sold into slavery. At the end of chapter 44, Judah had come to that wonderful point in his speech since Benjamin had been found with Joseph's cup and was threatening to become enslaved. Judah said at the end of chapter 44, verse 33, Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. So Judah substituted himself in the place of Benjamin, and then Joseph breaks down and reveals himself now. Chapter 45, the first 15 verses, the Godbury Scriptures. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out for me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near to me, you and your children and your children's children, your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine. And behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them, and after that his brothers talked with him. God's holy word. Shall we bow before God and ask for his blessing on his word today? O gracious God, who's written his word for our learning and our comfort, We'll bow before you to ask that you visit us today with words of grace and words of power. That you will help all the men who stand to speak for you on this Lord's Day, filling their lips with your truth and with the grace of the Lord Jesus, 
and blessing the proclamation of your word with the power of your spirit, who alone changes lives, converts lives, regenerates lives, and edifies our lives. Well, God, we need your word. We cannot live without it. We pray that you would feed our souls now and direct our steps by your truth so that you would be praised with our lips and glorified in our lives until the coming of our Lord from heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Congregation of Christ, I'd like to take a moment this morning to remember where we're at in this story and then to consider two points from the speech of Joseph. So as we noted last time, We've come to what is the final exam in these series of tests that Joseph has laid down for his brothers. Joseph had been at work testing his brothers to examine what's in their heart and to lead them, if need be, to repentance. And Joseph is an instrument of the Lord. It's really the work of God in the life of the family of Jacob, a family which is the Old Testament church of this day. And this family, as we've noted, is a family that's very twisted, a family that's become utterly broken, disunified. They've fractured among themselves, and they have fractured away from God. Unconfessed sin does that kind of thing, doesn't it? Unconfessed sin breaks relationships. But now, God is at work through Joseph's tests here, and Joseph's tests has, have brought these brothers now to the point of despair, really. He had, the first time when they came to Egypt, he had sent them home with grain for their family so they wouldn't starve during the But he had kept in custody Simeon, and he had told them, you go home and get your youngest brother whom you told me about, and only when you bring him back will I know that you are not spies. And then you could have your brother and grain and so forth. When they went home and told Father Jacob, Jacob's upset because, because Benjamin back home is his new favorite child, taking the place of Joseph, whom he believed has been eaten by animals, wild animals. And these two sons, Benjamin and Joseph, are the favorites of Father Jacob because they're the sons of his favorite wife, Rachel, who has died. And so Jacob could not bear to part with Benjamin for quite a time, but when it came to starvation as the only other option, he let them take Benjamin down to Egypt, and they came, no doubt, quite nervous. But things went surprisingly well. They were wined and dined by Joseph. They were sent home with grain. They're heading out of the city with the grain, and with Simeon, and with Benjamin, all as well, except perhaps their nagging consciences of what they did to Joseph 22 years earlier. Then Joseph's steward came charging out of the city after them, accusing them of stealing Joseph's cup of divination, his, his silver golden goblet. And they protested their innocence, but when the steward pulled it out of Benjamin's sack of grain where he had planted it, they were overwhelmed. They tore their clothes. They went back into the city. Even though the steward said only Benjamin needs to be held accountable here, they come back to Joseph. They throw themselves down, and they make this remarkable statement. They say, God has found out our iniquity. And that's really what's happened. They believe now that this is fully the work of God's judgment. They had been so unmerciful to Joseph, and now God is repaying them in this way. The brothers are experiencing in some way what Jesus says later in the New Testament, that he who wants to save his life will lose it. Because their lives up to this point have been a series of attempts to save their lives, to to maintain themselves, to grab hold of happiness. Their, 
their plotting against Joseph was an attempt to save their life. Their lying to Father Jacob, suggesting Joseph had been killed by animals, was an attempt to save their life. Reuben taking one of his father's wives was an attempt to, to save his happiness. Simeon and Levi, the massacre of a whole town of men out of vengeance, was an attempt to, to save their life. Judah, when he left the covenant community and went to live among the Canaanites and marry a pagan wife and teach his sons to do the same, was an attempt to save his life. And, and what have they discovered? They discovered it all comes to nothing. It's all empty. He who tries to save his life will lose it. But now God has been at work upon them, and they're learning that to lose one's life is to find life. Joseph has laid down the final exam. He has framed Benjamin so that the favorite son of their father will be enslaved now. They could all go home. And that's the opportunity before them, and that's the temptation before them. All ten of you can just head on home and have your lives and have your grain and have your families as long as you'll do to Benjamin what you did to Joseph. You just cut him loose. You'll just abandon him and care about yourself and save your lives. But this time the brothers refuse. They tear their clothes in solidarity with Benjamin. They go back to the city with Benjamin. They fall down before Joseph and say, we will all be your slaves. And then it comes to this high point when Judah says, not him but me. I substitute myself for him. Take me and let Benjamin go. And at this point now, suddenly Joseph cannot control himself because it's become apparent that God has finished his restoration work here or brought it to this great climactic moment that now they are a new men, a new people. They will lose their lives in order to find life. This morning, God is showing us that the way of repentance and self-surrender is really the blessed way because in returning to the Lord with repentance and self-surrender, we meet glorious God who gives us grace. Look this morning at these verses of chapter 45 under this theme, Joseph, the Lord's servant, reveals himself to his brothers as their wronged and willing deliverer. Joseph, the Lord's servant, reveals himself to his brothers now as their wronged but willing deliverer. And I have you see two things. First of all, the revelation of his forgiving love and then the foundation of his forgiving love. The revelation and the foundation of his forgiving love. Well, after this emotional speech of Judah, Joseph, it says, could not restrain himself. He had been, he had been a supreme actor, right, in terms of restraining himself. Ever since the first time he met his brothers, he had, he had kept up the disguise. He had been the stern ruler of Egypt. He accused them of being spies. He had, he had said harsh things to them. You won't see my face unless you bring your brother. And twice he's had to turn aside and to weep and to wash his face and come back trying to keep up this mask. But throughout all this time, it's been welling up in his heart, these, these emotions of pain, of love, of forgiveness, of wanting to know his brothers again and be restored. And now it's too much. He orders everyone, all the servants, to leave the room while he reveals himself to his brothers. He breaks out weeping, weeping so loudly that in the palace beyond the doors, they hear him. And he says, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? And the brothers are just dumbfounded, right? They, they have no way of being prepared to believe now that the stern ruler whom they have feared with all their hearts is their brother. The great prince of Egypt, who's probably been speaking through an interpreter, who's held their lives in his hand, 
And they, they must, at first, when he's weeping, wonder if he's psychotic, right? He accuses them of being spies. He brings them back and wines and dines them in his own house. Then he accuses them of stealing the goblet. Now he's weeping over them. This is just bizarre behavior, right? But then when he says, I, I'm Joseph, now they might wonder, is he an imposter? What, do they, what does he know about Joseph? Did he meet Joseph? Is Joseph his slave? Is he playing with us? What's going on here? And then when they come to realize that this is Joseph, and he pulls off the disguise, please come near me. I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. What if this is Joseph? What's he going to do to us now? But what does Joseph do? He doesn't leave his brothers in limbo for one single second, does he? But he he says to them, But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. He doesn't leave them to squirm for a second. He instantly tells them, I forgive you. I love you. I pardon you. I'm not going to charge it against you. I'm not going to condemn you. It's really amazing forgiving love, isn't it? And who else reveals himself in that way in the Bible? Who else shows himself in this way as the wronged and willing deliverer? So Joseph wants to be known among his brothers. Not just, hey, it's me, Joseph. But he wants to be known as the one who forgives them, as the one who loves them, as the one whom they need not be afraid of, but in whom they may find comfort. And, of course, the one who reveals himself in that way in the Bible is our Lord Jesus Christ. God's son, his revelations are, are even more breathtaking. In fact, there's some, some very memorable instances in the Bible, aren't there? You think of, of the risen Jesus, when Mary Magdalene's at the tomb weeping, that the body of Jesus is missing, and a man approaches her, and she says, thinking he's the gardener, you know, if you've taken him, tell me where you've put him, sir. And he says with a word, Mary, Mary, it's me. Suddenly her eyes are open. It's the risen Jesus. And then what is she to think now, meeting this risen Jesus? She, she probably knows about how much the disciples had failed Jesus the night before, that they had abandoned Jesus when he was being arrested, that, that they, one of them, Peter, had denied Jesus three times over. And what does Jesus say? He says, go to my brothers and tell them. I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Jesus wants his disciples to have no doubt that he's not going to charge them with this or hold it against them. He forgives them and he he gives his Father them as their Father and they may find peace and be part of the family. The revelation of Jesus, the unveiling of himself is a spectacular event. One other incident you remember well is the the road to Damascus, right? Saul, the persecutor, he's on the way to a city to destroy the people of God, and he's confronted by the risen Jesus. The light knocks him to the ground. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? I am Jesus. And then what? Words of mercy. Prophet Ananias sent to him, tell him to arise be baptized, and wash away his sins. Jesus reveals himself as the wrong but willing deliverer. 
Those are just a couple of the big, bold, dramatic instances in Scripture where Christ visibly appeared. But, you know, every time the gospel is preached, it is the same Lord Jesus who is, who is presenting himself to us, who is revealing himself to us, who is unveiling to us his face of grace and mercy. Have you met him? Have you seen the unveiled face of the Lord Jesus and all of his grace and mercy? Have you seen that face in the words of Scripture? Have you encountered that face in the preaching of the gospel? Christ is proclaiming himself. He is unveiling himself. Romans 10 says, How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? So the Lord is making clear in Romans 10 that he is pleased to unveil himself to sinners in the declaring and proclamation of his word. And although we may not have murdered Christ's people or imprisoned them as Saul did, we've all wronged the Son of God. We have denied him. We have ignored him. We've trampled his commandments. We have been embarrassed of him. We have sat by silently while his name was maligned. And yet, he reveals himself to repentant sinners, and his word is what? That's the Lord of grace. Not simply the prince of Egypt, but the prince of peace. If we will only come near him and take him at his word. Joseph's words to his brothers when they are just shocked. When he says, verse 4, please come near to me. Come closer. I want to convince you. I want you to know it's me. I want you to see my tears and, and see my face of mercy. It's really what the Lord does in his word all the time, doesn't he? He calls us near. And the brothers have to decide, don't they? Will they come near? Will they dare to come near? And as the Lord, his word, comes us near, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. We face that, don't we? Will we be willing to approach our Lord Jesus? Sometimes we don't want to come. Sometimes we don't want to come, do we? We're maybe afraid because we're not living by faith. We don't want to believe. We can't believe we think that he will be gracious to me. Or sometimes we're too proud to come. I don't want grace. I don't want you calling me to come receive grace. I want you to approve me as I am. Or I want to make up for it myself. I want to pay my own way. Sometimes we just don't want to surrender our sin in our lives. You know, as Joseph tells his brothers that, that there's five more years of famine, they should all come down to Egypt, that he's going to provide for them, he's going to give them the land of Goshen, and he's going to care for them. They're actually being asked not just to receive the care of Joseph, but what's the implication? To come under the rule of Joseph, Right? They set out to kill Joseph because he had these dreams that he would be the ruler, and they could not stomach that. He would be the ruler over them, and their sheaves would bow down to him. No way. And now to make the decision to move to Egypt and receive food from Joseph's hand is also to come under the hand of Joseph's lordship. And isn't it remarkable in Matthew 11 when Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. The implication is if you would have that rest from the hand of Jesus, you have to do what? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. 
To have Christ as our Savior is to have Christ as our Lord. To have Christ in all of his forgiving grace is to have him as our master in which we turn from our sin and say, My life, Lord, is yours. But if we will do that, if we will come near to him, we hear Jesus say to us then, I am Jesus whom you sinned against, but I forgive you. I'm Jesus who you have denied and wronged, but I pardon you. I give my life for you. Brothers are dumbfounded at this. And we should probably be a little bit more shocked by the preaching of the gospel than we are. We who get so used to it, so nonchalant, no big deal, we ought to be dumbfounded. That the Lord of glory, the creator of the universe we've sinned against, says, come near and hear my words of mercy. See, Joseph here is sacrificing his own revenge upon his brothers. Judah did a marvelous thing to offer himself a substitute. But the real deliverer here is Joseph, isn't it? Who sacrifices all personal vendetta to give his life for his brothers. The greatest sacrifice, the one to which Joseph points, is Jesus Christ, who is able to forgive us because he gave his life, not some hard years of slavery in Egypt, but he gave his life under the curse for us. This is the glorious love of our Lord Jesus, which he is so pleased to reveal. Come near and hear me. It is I myself who speak to you, Jesus says. But as we look at the story and we see Joseph's forgiving love, if we've ever been wrong before, we might wonder, how does Joseph do this? How can he forgive them? And that brings us to the other thing this morning, the foundation, this invincible foundation of Joseph's love. And it's this, that Joseph's love rests on God's love for Joseph. Let's look at that in the second place. Joseph is crystal clear as to how he can forgive his brothers. He says in verse 5, But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Now Joseph has not forgotten what happened. You sold me here. Verse 4, you sold into Egypt. Joseph is not excusing his brothers. Joseph is not saying it's no big deal. He says, you did it. You did it to me. I came down here under your hands and your decisions. But Joseph is saying that though you laid hands on me, there was a greater hand on top of your hands, and that was the hand of our God. You did nothing to me but what God had so planned and purposed. You see, Joseph, brothers and sisters, Joseph is able to love his brothers because Joseph knows that greater than his brother's act of hatred is the sovereignty of God's love. Joseph knows that he is loved of God, who's working all things together for good. Now, preachers, myself included, when preaching on Lord's Day 10, Doctor of Providence, love to read these words, or when Joseph says it again in chapter 50, after Jacob dies, his brothers get nervous again that maybe now Joseph will get them, and he says, no, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to save many lives. Providence is that wonderful doctrine that God so rules all things 
as to work for his glory and the good of his people. What do you understand by the providence of God, Lord's Day 10 of the Catechism Mass? And we confess that providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds heaven and earth and all things. But he doesn't just uphold them. This gospel of God's hand is that in upholding them, he also rules them. He so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by the hand of our Father. Well, how does that doctrine help us, the Catechism Mass? Well, we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will separate us from his love. Joseph knows that doctrine, that no creature is able to separate him from God's love. The hatred of his brothers couldn't do it. The the cruelty of Egypt couldn't do it. The malicious ways of Satan couldn't do it. There's no creature that can separate me from God's love. Providence isn't merely some added extra that Reformed-type Christians hold to. Providence is at the heart of the Bible. Jesus believed and took comfort in it when, when, before Pontius Pilate, Pilate said, why won't you speak to me? Don't you know I have the power to crucify you? And Jesus said, you'd have no power if it wasn't given you from above. And the apostles go forward preaching after Christ arises from the dead. And and Peter says in Acts chapter 2 that that Jesus was handed over to you by the determined purpose of God. And you with lawless hands crucified him. And so we believe that the doctrine of providence includes what theologians call concurrence. That God works concurrently with with secondary causes. So, So he uses the hands of men. And the hands of men are the responsibility of men. We are moral agents and we are responsible for everything we do. And you, with wicked hands, crucified Jesus. But your hands are not ultimate. There's a hand on top of your hand. It's the hand of the living God. According to his set purpose, Christ was not just crucified, but God so worked that his death was the saving atonement of his people. That's the truth of Scripture. Jesus knew God, his Father, was in full control. And that allowed him to retain composure and even to minister grace on the way to the cross and hanging upon the cross. And that same Christ was at work already here in Joseph. Joseph knows the sovereignty of God. Joseph knows that my state of misery that I've endured in Egypt is not the result ultimately of of my brother's choices. But I've come here. By God's work. What my brothers have done to me is not something that's happened in some random, chaotic, meaningless universe. But what my brothers have done to me has happened in this personal world where the living God superintends every single thing that happens. Now what would happen, do you suppose, if Joseph did not believe in providence? What would he do to his brothers at this point? If he was in a position now of power, and all he saw were these wicked doers who ruined his life. I've told you before, I think, that some years ago I got to teach 
in a prison and to meet many brothers in the Lord who told me about their former lives and how they ended up in prison. One young man belonged to a gang, and he woke up one morning and looked out the window and saw his car window had been bashed in, so he instantly determined it was due to the rival gang, so he got his gun. He walked a few blocks down the road till he found a couple of the rival gang. He flashed them their gang signs, so they thought that he was one of them, and when they turned their backs, he shot them both in the back for a broken window. Another man told me he came home and found that his wife had invited somebody else into the house. And he, in his rage at her unfaithfulness, got the gas can and lit the house on fire and tried to burn them both up. That's what you do if all you see before you is a single human actor who is the cause of your angst. These brothers in prison are not... Extreme examples, they are what we are by nature, what we all are by nature. And it's what we all do in one form or another whenever we attribute more power to the hands of people than to the hand of God. We end up sinning. Whether it's the snide comment in return that a brother or sister says right back at you, Or it's the anger you harbor against your spouse throughout the day, thinking that my spouse ruined my day because they didn't do this or they did do that. Or it's the attempt to get back at someone at work, to frustrate their work, to slow walk their project, payback time. Joseph had learned a different way, hadn't he? Did you see how many times he said it? Verse 5. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, and God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth. Verse 8, so now it was not you who sent me here, but God. Verse 9, go tell my father, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Where do you learn to speak that way? You learn it from God, who's pleased to school us in the school of Christ and to conform our minds to the reality that our lives are in his hand. A friend in the Lord, when I first met him, first told me about his accident, his auto accident, in which he and his wife were struck by a drunk driver. And as he spoke, I thought it happened, you know, last week. Or last year, I guess, but it happened years earlier. But they were hit, and they were severely injured. They were hospitalized. His wife was nearly killed. And as I got to know him, it became clear that when somebody selfishly, irresponsibly acts like that, in drunkenness, nearly killing you and your wife, it's very difficult to take your eyes off the offender and put them on to the Lord. But you see, here's the thing. There is no human offender who can bear the weight of the meaning of your existence. There isn't. If Joseph enslaves his brothers or kills his brother, does that restore the years Joseph lost? Does it make sense of all that's happened? We are thankful for justice, 
We are thankful for courts, which God uses to restrain sin. That's important. But you know, it's happened to people that after in their minds building up this image of a great monster who's ruined their life, they finally confront their offender, that they leave dismayed that the person is so weak and pathetic. And there's not enough harm could be inflicted upon this, inflicted upon this, this pathetic life even to make sense of everything. They're just another weak, failing person like me. And suddenly it all comes falling flat. That the one we want to pin all things on, the whole meaning of our misery, turns out to be a weak, crumbling human. There's no one big enough to bear the meaning of our existence but God. Joseph has a remarkably clear understanding that it's God. He also has a very clear understanding of why God did it. We often don't have that, right? Joseph would say, I'm here because of God, but also I'm here because God sent me to preserve you, to save his church, to save the world, to save the line of the coming Messiah. We oftentimes, we say, God, yes, but why? I don't know. I can't see how this will work out for good. I can't imagine any way this will turn to good. And what are we to do then when we can't see the why? The answer is that we have to go back to the cross where we observe that the greatest crime ever committed in God's hand becomes the the greatest act of salvation ever performed. And we have to believe that us united to this Lord Jesus and our lives united to God's purpose in Christ, that things have a meaning and a purpose though we cannot see it. Because Joseph focused upon the Lord's hand, Joseph was not embittered. Because Christ is at work in Joseph, Joseph is willing to sacrifice his personal vengeance. And he's enabled not just to be the deliverer of God's people, but he is enabled to be a faint outline of the coming Christ. But aren't we? Also called to reflect our Savior, when in Lord's Day 1 we confess my life is not my own, I belong to him, and he makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. When we confess in Lord's Day 1 that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven, aren't we now those who are supposed to replicate our crucified and risen Savior? Can I ask you, brothers and sisters, where in your life this morning do you think that your thinking and acting would change if you took your eyes off of a human and set them upon the Lord, the Lord of providence? Where could you find peace or greater peace if you learn to speak the way Joseph speaks here? Boys and girls and young people, this is transformative, right? If If we are focused on mom or dad and what they're saying to us and and they are the cause of our troubles because they're demanding this, they're requiring this, it's my mom, it's my dad. But what if instead we said, it's my God who gave me these parents. God gave me this mom. God gave me this dad. 
It's God who put me here. Maybe in doctrine. If it wasn't the confused receptionist, if it wasn't the careless doctor with his poor bedside manner, if it wasn't the physician who never returns calls, if it wasn't that, but we said, it's God. What if in business dealings it wasn't the weasel who cheated me, but it was the hand of God? What if even in dating and seeking a spouse, we were not at the mercy of other people, not even at the mercy of ourselves? Isn't it true? I remember those years that you can hate even yourself can loathe yourself. Maybe you think you missed an opportunity or you, you despise yourself for your personality or too shy or whatever it is. You, you hate yourself. But what if the ultimate one in your life is not yourself, but the Lord? The Lord. The God who formed you and made you. The Father who loves you in Christ. Wouldn't that change the perspective? The greatest of all, of course, would be the question, would it change my relationship to my brother or sister as it changed the disunity of the church here in Genesis chapter 45? Where the house of Jacob is divided, where sons have lied to their father, killed his son, as it were, have broken ranks with each other, have certainly been divided from Joseph, But now if their eyes will be set upon the Lord and the sacrifice of the Lord revealed in Joseph can find each other again and again now, weep over each other and embrace one another. Isn't it an amazing thing? If in the church of Jesus Christ our eyes are not set upon the one who wronged us, who did us such evil, But we could look up to heaven and say, you know, this too has been in the hand of God. The ultimate meaning, the ultimate force in my life has not been my brother or sister, but has been the sovereign Lord. And as I yield to him and find my peace in him, I'm able to forgive as Joseph did too. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Have you seen the face of Jesus? And are you living a life in union with Jesus so that you no longer live But Christ lives in you, the Christ who loved you, though you didn't deserve it, though you had betrayed him, who loved you and gave himself for you. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we praise you for such a Savior. We rejoice that the revelation of our Lord Jesus in the New Testament is so much the clearer, so much the bolder, and so much more complete as he lays down his life for us, his enemies, 
to bring us into the family, to restore unity with God and therefore unity with each other. We thank you for our brother. We have no greater brother than our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for the Prince of Peace. And we pray that he would dwell in us and that he would teach us to trust your hand as a good hand, to know that you are a God not against us, but a God who is for us. And we praise you, O Lord, that you're teaching us this way, that we might learn to speak as you taught Joseph to speak, and so to forgive as you taught Joseph to forgive, and so to rejoice as you taught Joseph to rejoice, that you have a plan for your church and a purpose that no man, no creature, no force of nature will overcome. Glory be to you, in Jesus' name, amen.